You're listening to the Home Staging Show podcast. I'm your host, Dylan. This is a show where we talk about all things real estate, home staging, and selling your home to live and to sell. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 133. Hi, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Home Staging Show. So, on today's shows, I actually have one of our team members, Courtney, on the show. So, many of you have met Courtney at the SagerCon retreat in February and the SagerCon, which is hot last month. In addition to working in social media, Courtney also worked as a birth doula, and she has done work in trauma and healing. The reason why I want to talk about working with difficult and emotional home staging clients is because our clients may actually be going through a lot of traumatic situations internally, and they experience that, but they externalize through anger or over-controlling and all that stuff. We may be meeting our clients at a time where things are very hectic and very chaotic and very stressful for them. And I've certainly encountered my share of difficult clients in my staging career. The sellers could be defensive. They could be emotional drained and simply felt very overwhelmed and they take it out on us. So it's really important to understand how do we deal with these difficult situations and how can we create a win-win situation as often as possible. So I thought this would be a really great space to talk about this, especially I never really hear anyone talk about this in our industry. But yeah, we work in day in and day out in someone's home. You can be working with someone very intimately, and they're also going through a very hectic time in their life. There's lots of moving pieces when it comes to selling your own house. So it can be a very emotional time for a home seller. So I think it's really important to have this discussion and then be a bit empathetic as well about what our clients may be going through. And before we get started today, just a quick reminder, we do have a monthly challenge going on starting this month. And this month's theme is bedroom. So send in your bedroom before and after photos so we can feature you. Just go to sagingawards.com slash challenge and you can find out all the details about winning and entering our monthly challenge. We also post about this on our Instagram, so feel free to pick up the details there too. We're also in the process of revamping a lot of technical stuff in our background. So we're moving off our current course platform to a more community-based one so that I feel like our community can feel more involved and also more engaged and also more supported as well. I'm also always keep looking to have better ways to improve our client experience, to improve our students' experience, and also updating our courses as well. So I just thought it was really important to do that. And it's really the right time to do it. It's a lot. I'm not going to lie. It's very stressful, especially moving. I mean, we have about 7,000 people on our email list now. So imagine moving all that. But I'm really happy we're going back to Flowdesk, actually, because I just love how visually and how designy it is. It's a really great platform to be on. Also, it's a woman-owned company. So I really love that. I want to support that as well. And then also, if you ever want to try Flowdesk out, we do have a referral link that you can save 50% off on your subscription. You can just go to stagemore.com slash Flowdesk to get it. And Flowdesk is spelled F-L-O-D-E-S-K. We're also going to link this in the show notes. So you can just go to our show notes at stagemore.com slash podcast and click on the episode and you can find all the goodies there. We're also working really hard to prepare for our very first virtual open house for the school. We're launching a career certificate program for homesagers next month in September. 
But I want to open it up to our super fans like you guys first. So if you are thinking about starting your own home staging business or has started but is struggling to keep it going, just come by the open house. We're going to be doing live Q&As so you can find out more about our certification program itself, but also ask questions about running your home staging business. We're also going to have a super early bird if you're interested in enrolling in September. The certificate program is going to start in late September. It's going to be intense. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but it's going to be lots of fun as well. I've got five phases planned within the program. We got a lot of fun stuff planned as well. A lot of engagement stuff, a lot of really like rewards as well, pepper in throughout the entire certification. So you will feel a sense of accomplishment and gain confidence in running your home staging business. I'm really gonna be like Tina Fey from The Mean Girls. I'm just gonna push you, I'm gonna warn you right now. This is really not a program for people who are passive, who just wanna sit around and wait for business to call you. I really want active doers in this program and we're gonna help you to take actions and also consistently implement those actions strategically so they can make profits and get results and really build that thriving and vibrant home staging business you want. And lastly, do join me live every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a hump date lunch hour. So this week, I'm having Daniel from Stage Spaces on. It's definitely going to be a much more relaxed atmosphere and a much more relaxed format as well than the podcast. It's just a different feel. You get to see both of us live on video. And Daniel, they've been really busy. It's been a super crazy season where they are, which is in LA. So he actually might be on the job site. So if you follow us on Instagram, just go to our profile at Stage for More. On their upper right-hand corner, there's a little bell icon. If you click on it, and Instagram will notify you when we go live. So that's all the updates so far for this week. Let's start the show. Hi, Courtney. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. So, so many of our listeners or community members and students know you as our marketing coordinator. But you've actually done a lot of work on the healing side of things and working with people personally on dealing with their traumas. So I thought it was something that's really important to talk about since we work with people in their homes as home stagers. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get into working with people in dealing with their traumas? Yeah, so it wasn't exactly planned. I was in college and being a coach or holding space for people was never on my to-do list, but it's actually really interesting. I was having a hard day and I was thinking that I didn't know what to do when I was going to graduate. And I was venting to a friend that I wasn't going to follow my passion or that I didn't know what my passion was. A person Instagram messaged me and said, hey, do you take one-on-one clients for coaching? And I responded, I do now. So that's how I got started. It kind of just fell into my lap. And I've been doing it for the last three years. And it's definitely changed with how I work with clients. And I definitely work more focused on trauma-informed care. I work mainly with women and women identifying folks and have done a lot of workshops over the past and events and worked at festivals. So it's been a journey and it's really exciting. Yeah, no, I think that's really good to hear. I think this is really important because we don't realize how much trauma people are carrying when they're living through their lives. And it can come out at different parts, especially when they're really stressed. 
And I think selling a home obviously is one of the most stressful things people go through in their lives. Because a lot of times people are selling because of a major event in their lives. It could be because of death in the family. Not everything is because of a happy occasion. And on top of that, you also have to move, which is also the other very stressful thing in people's lives. So I think it triggers a lot of emotions coming out. And so as real estate professionals working personally in people's homes with homeowners closely, sometimes they do take it out on us, unfortunately. So it can be very emotional. Also with selling, there's a lot of emotional triggers. So for example, attachment, I've come across this several times. People are really attached to the home. They don't want to sell. It could be the children who don't want to move. They don't want to leave their friends. Or it was a house they were born in. They were already super attached to the house. Or sellers were just really attached to the items and also the house itself. Maybe they're borderline hoarders. And it became very difficult to persuade them to pack and to move on with their lives. So in a situation like this, how do we position ourselves when working with clients who are dealing with emotional traumas, especially if they resist their current situation? So I think everything you said is super important. I think the first step is to just be aware that in your line of work, people may be going through trauma because moving alone is such a stressful situation that as someone who's trained to look for what trauma looks like, even if they haven't just recently been going through that direct trauma, moving or stressful situations can reactivate past emotional trauma. So it's really important to just be aware that what you're working with could actually be a really hard situation for your clients. And when I think about emotional trauma, it really comes down to three things as far as how to work one-on-one with other people that may be dealing with it. And it's compassion, language, and boundaries. And so starting with compassion, I feel like there's really two parts. First, you have to have compassion for your client, because like you said, you never know the whole story. They could be dealing with a divorce and maybe their spouse isn't really supportive. And so they're doing it all on their own. Or like you said, other family members are just having a really hard time with the process. And so the homeowners might demonstrate behaviors or emotions that are a bit more challenging to navigate. So I feel like it's important to always assume that you don't know the whole story and to be compassionate with your words and actions. Some examples of that is to talk slowly, to have a soft tone with your voice. I'm sure you know it's really easy to get snappy when you're (laughs) having a hard day at work, but just always being really slow and explaining the process to them and smiling and making sure that they feel like they're a part of the process, pausing to listen to them. So you may have to put a little more effort into these clients, but this will help to ensure that they feel safe and seen throughout the process of selling their home. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think having that compassion is very important as a starting point because sometimes people confuse between empathy and compassion. Can you talk about the two? What are the differences? Empathy is usually described as you've been through it or at the very least you can put yourself in their experience and you really feel deeply. You experience what they're going through. It's like this full body I've been there and I see you and I hear you where then compassion is more, it's not surface level in the sense of how much care there is, but it's kind of taking yourself out of the situation and just offering kindness and love to your client. In a way, compassion can be better for the professional field. 
because you're acknowledging their experience, you're offering them support in the way that you can, which is in your scope of practice, but you're also being friendly and kind and getting the job done. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a really hard line sometimes when working with people in such personal situations, you do feel for them, but it also becomes a device from clients sometimes to negotiate to lower your price as a service professional. We also have to stand a very firm line, even though we're compassionate about the situation, we're empathetic, but that doesn't mean that we can necessarily lose money on the project. That's a very important thing because I definitely was a little bit, I feel like taken advantage of in the beginning of my career when people just, I mean, it's legitimate. They're going through a divorce. It's a really difficult situation, but that doesn't mean that I need to necessarily give them a $500 discount on the project because simply I also need to be responsible for my business. Definitely. That definitely falls under number three, which was boundaries. And you have to make sure that you're still maintaining your business and that you're still successful while also being compassionate to other people. Yeah. And then the other thing that you mentioned is language. You want to elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah. So I also wanted to mention having compassion for yourself as well. I think that's super important. And I wanted to touch on that because when you're working one-on-one with clients that are going through a hard time, it's really important to be aware of how they could be triggering you because we all have baggage. We all have really hard days. Maybe there's something going on in our personal life. An example is maybe the homeowner is really micromanaging and They are telling you how to do everything. They're coming to check up on you every single day. And maybe your mother, who you have a bad relationship with, is the same exact way. And so it triggers you more than just the most common or average situation. And so I think it's really important to be aware of those things, be aware of what you're bringing to the table as well, and be aware if you're having a bad day to have more patience with yourself and offer that compassion, not only to your client, but to yourself. If you are a little more snappy, being able to course correct and apologize and be better because emotional trauma, there's this thing called transference. So it's not usually just they're having a bad experience and it doesn't affect you at all. It usually rubs off on the people around them. So it's important to be aware of that as well when working one-on-one with people. I think that's a really good point to mention because we definitely feel that a lot. And I've noticed that too. Sometimes I do get triggered by clients' questions. Yeah. I'm very impatient. So when you're in a situation like this, what are some of the ways you can quickly transition yourself and calm yourself down so that you can take out that bad energy that you're not impacting or making the conversation worse, essentially? Definitely. Yeah. My favorite tool is breath. It seems so simple and we breathe all day, every day, but taking a moment to intentionally breathe. If you breathe shorter inhales and longer exhales, it actually calms your nervous system. So that's something you can do in the middle of a conversation, right? Something happens, you feel triggered and you just (sighs) take a deep breath. And it actually really, really helps kind of reset the situation. And if you're feeling anything or you're holding on to anything, it can kind of just release that in the moment. So I would say breathing is the biggest and most accessible tool. 
if you have a moment to step away, sometimes after sessions that I work that are really heavy emotionally, I'll kind of do like a arm shake or just a body shake. It's something actually animals do in the wild when they're traumatized, they just shake their body. And that really helps reset as well. Something else I wanted to mention is when you're away from the situation. So if you're at your workspace or you're going on your way to work, sometimes having affirmations or just reminders on your dash or on your phone can really help when you're working with a client that's going to be a little bit more emotionally taxing or you just have a really busy week and you're working with a bunch of different people. It can be really helpful to kind of set those reminders for yourself. It's almost like you have yourself as a little pat on the back when you're having a hard time. I love that. I think that's really important. And actually, I think most people don't know this, but I taught yoga in my 20s. And teaching is a conduit. One of my teachers was saying that when you teach, you become a conduit of energy. And so when you're working with students, when you're working with people, it's natural you're going to take on their energy as well. But it's really important for the energy to pass through you, not actually affecting you. Because obviously we get energized by good energy. Like when we see family and friends that we really love, enjoy, it really like pump us up energetically. But if you are meeting with people whose energy you're not in sync with, or they are coming off with a lot of bad or negative energy, you can get affected negatively and it can actually harm you. And I remember when I was first started assisting my teachers, I would go home and sleep for like entire day because I just was carrying on so many. Because when people do these type of work, they release energies Mm -hmm. and it can be really intense to deal with. Even though like I woke up at nine, assisted a class and then for an hour and a half and I went home, took a shower and actually was able to sleep for an entire afternoon. And then when I told my teacher that, she was like, yeah, you didn't do the block. You have to block yourself as well from that energy exchange or turn yourself into this conduit, literally just pass through you. So a lot of times teachers do yoga before and after mm-hmm. to resync, reset that energy as well. And I think that's something we actually really don't talk about when we work in people's home. Because I notice actually, when I walk into a space, into a home, I can sense the energy as well by the surrounding. Oftentimes I can walk into a home and sense maybe someone has passed away in the home because the energy or the air actually smelled really stagnant. Like you can actually feel and smell the energy. Or if the home is very chaotic, usually it's a direct reflection of the mental state of the homeowners. For example, if they're going through a divorce, the house felt like it's going through a war. And so, yeah, so I do think houses and people do carry energy and we actually can feel it as well because we also take and give energy. So I'm really happy that you mentioned that because I think that's something that we really don't think about working because we never talk about these more holistic things in our lives. I know it's super woo-woo because I'm a California (laughs) girl, but I do feel it and I do firmly believe in that. And some people are more sensitive to it and some people are not. But maybe you're working with a homeowner who is very sensitive to energy and they can't explain why. So then we have to be very in tune and then try to figure out what are some of the things that can actually trigger our client that we can deal with it in a very positive way and not let it influence our day-to-day or our project progress. Yeah, exactly. While you were sharing that, I actually thought of suggesting, I don't know how many people do this, but before and after work, 
having some sort of five to 10 minute daily practice with yourself. And that can make a huge difference. And I think often we get so busy in our day-to-day lives and we just get in the car, go to work, go home, eat dinner. And we forget that taking five minutes actually can really make a huge difference so that you're breaking the pattern between going into a home and picking up whatever is going on in that space and then bringing it back to your home or bringing it back into your family. And so just having a moment in your car after going and working with clients or working with homeowners and sitting with yourself and saying, okay, I release everything from today's workday and moving on or just having a moment to breathe or having a moment where you're with yourself rather than distracting yourself with music or podcast or just driving and not thinking about it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point because I think we need to set boundaries for our lives as well. I mean, people talk about work-life balance a lot. I think one of the things I enjoy having a regular desk in my co-working space is that I can basically leave work at work. You know, all my computer, all my stuff, it's at work. I literally have to go into a physical space to do work. And if when I go home, I'm just at home. I'm watching Netflix. I'm playing with my dog. It's very separated. So I think that's nice actually feeling like I'm not taking a lot of emotions from work back to home. But I think it's really difficult sometimes for entrepreneurs or for business owners who are constantly working, right? You you don't really get that clean separation. And that can actually impact our family members as well. Oftentimes, we don't realize that. Or if you're a single person, it can actually bleed into your personal life. And I think that was one of the key mistakes I think I've made in my 20s. Like I learned that in a hard way, that I really need to rebalance everything between my personal life and my work life. Yeah, I had to learn that too. When I was doing one-on-one sessions at home, they would often be really, really intense. And I would take it on a lot. Like you said, when you were doing yoga, I would sleep for the whole rest of the day. And my boyfriend would have to take over everything for the rest of the day and cook dinner, clean, get everything organized. And I'd wake up from my nap and just be so exhausted. And so me not having boundaries early in the beginning actually affected everyone around me because then I was leaning on them more to pick up my slack. And all I needed to do was be more aware of my own boundaries with the work I was doing. Yeah. So we talk a lot about compassion so far, and we still haven't really talked about language and also boundaries. So do you want to elaborate a little bit more about these two? Yes. So the next component is language. So obviously that's how you talk and interact with the homeowners and your clients. And what I do is I work with trauma-sensitive language, and that's a huge component of trauma-informed care. And so that's not using triggering language, using I feel statements rather than you. And so how that applies to home staging is, first, I want to explain what someone that's going through emotional trauma might look like so that you can be aware of when you're working directly with other people. It's important to know what those signs are so you understand when to change how you're talking or just be more aware and compassionate. So emotional trauma can look like disassociating is a huge symptom of processing emotional trauma, which that can be lack of eye contact, kind of this floaty, spacey feeling, trouble communicating, closed off body language. It can even manifest depending on the personality as defensiveness. So snappiness, aggression, hopefully in your line of work, you don't have aggression necessarily physically, but just sort of that more aggressive body language. 
And then also it could be playing the victim role or talking about their own self-doubt, guilt, or just really fixating on what is going on in their life in a negative way. And so I think it's really important to be aware of when someone's going through the hard situation and versus being actively reactivated or triggered in the moment that you guys are exchanging conversation. And so some language that you can use is for homestagers, you could say, I feel rather than I think or you should. Say someone has a crazy pink wall in their living room and it just doesn't really work. You could say, I feel that if we painted the living room a more neutral color, it would attract more buyers and kind of gauge how their response is to that. Maybe they're super attached to their living room looking the way it looks. And you could even use factual evidence to show why that's a good decision as well. So you're getting all emotions sort of out of it and just saying, you know, in my past experience, I did this home and I changed the walls to neutral. And this is how much more quicker we got buyers to the market. You could even follow up changes with how does this make you feel? Or do you like this change? Just to kind of check in with them and see how they're moving through the process with you. Because the last thing you want is for them to bottle all of their anger or their resentment up and then blow up on you months down the road because they didn't check in with themselves and realize that these changes were really hard on them. And so really walking them through the process and checking in with them allows them to be more transparent with their emotions. And so checking in, I think a part of language is having check-ins with yourself, making sure that you're communicating clearly, making sure that you're not getting triggered, like we said earlier, and then also checking in with them to make sure that everyone's on the same page. And of course, communicating with kind language always helps too. Yeah, no, I think that is so key in actually talking about... And I think this also applies very well to handling client objections. For example, the client comes back and says, I don't really want to repaint my pink walls. And I think it's really important to actually tell them the reason why we do it. You talk about earlier with factual statements. You can quote design theory, for example, or you can actually show them physical evidence by taking a photo. So if we leave the color as is now, this is what it's going to look like on the internet. And as you know, the statistics from National Association of Realtors, more than 90% of buyers look at homes now first online, especially during COVID. Essentially, everybody is buying houses 100% online before they actually go see an open house. So it's really important for your house to show very well. So as you can see, this pink wall actually doesn't read very well in photograph. So when we put it in terms like that or in different ways of explaining it and then also making clients feel that we are listening by using I feel statement, I think it's actually going to go a very long way in kind of diminishing that objection and also starting to pull their defense down as well. Yeah, because I feel a lot of people get defensive when they feel like they're not being heard. So just a simple statement of I hear you, I feel this just instantly makes them feel more seen in the discussion. Yeah. And then also, I know when we're prepping for the session, we talk about love languages. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and how can we apply in our client work as well? Yes. So I learned about love languages about five years ago, actually. My mom was making me do the quiz and I thought she was silly and didn't know what she was talking about. And then three years later, I was on the train and asking everyone what their love language was. So for those of you that don't know what that is, it's a simple, you can Google what is my love language and take a little quiz. But basically, there's five love languages. There's physical touch, 
words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, and quality time. And so this theory is that everyone gives and receives love in one or multiple of these ways. And so, for example, I give love through physical touch, but I receive love through words and quality time. And so I think that's a huge part of how people feel seen as well as obviously if they feel loved. And it might not be realistic for you to ask every person you work with, what's your love language? But if you're aware of these different archetypes, you can start to learn how to read people and then see, okay, this person really likes receiving gifts. So I'm going to go out of my way to make them a really nice gift and leave it on the table. Or it's usually how people give is also how they receive. So maybe your homeowner is really verbally validating. And so just being aware of those little ways that they show affection and care, and then being able to reciprocate it to make them feel loved. In addition to online quiz, there's actually a book that you can read. Mm -hmm. It's not very big. I think it's a very quick book to go through. And I think it really also changes my relationship personally as well. I mean, I can see it at work, how some people are more maybe prone to like touches or affirmation of words, etc. Having worked with real estate agent, I feel like words of affirmation is a big one <laughs> with real estate population. Definitely. But for me personally, also notice how that changed my personal relationship as well. I think both my mom and I are more about acts of service. For me, it feels like you've seen me. Like what you just said, it's that people feeling that you're thinking about them, that you are constantly caring about them. And that's why you're performing these acts of service. Or maybe people are really responding to give. So that could be something you can really tap into when you're working with people as well, starting to read people a little bit better so that you can connect with them a bit better, especially when it comes to establishing long-term client relationships. A hundred percent. And the way that other people receive love may not be the way that comes naturally for you to give love. I know with my boyfriend, he receives love like you, Cindy, with acts of service. And I have a really hard time with acts of service as a love language because my mother expected us to do the dishes and to do all these acts of service, but it felt more like a chore and like I was forced to do it. And so now that's actually really hard for me to view acts of service as giving love. And so it's something that you have to really work with with other people and change how you give love as well. And so I think it really, it really just expands your ability to work with other people from different backgrounds and have really solid relationships with them. Yeah. And the last part is boundary. And I think it's so, so important, especially working with a service-based business. When we're working in services, we want to do what's best for our client, right? We want to do everything for them. We want to bend it over backward, but we can't. We have to protect our own business as well. Like there is that boundary. As business owners, we are responsible to our business for it to thrive or to crash completely. So I think it's really important, especially when people's businesses are growing, maybe you're taking on freelancers or employees, then your responsibilities become heavier as well. That's something that really drove into me, I think, since I was a child, because both of my parents had their own businesses. And my mom was a solopreneur. She had her own like dental practice. I was a receptionist for free, <laughs> child labor. <laughs> and my dad, he had a company, you know, he had employees. And then so my dad was also always very stressed, especially at the end of the month, because it's payroll, right? Payrolls and bonuses. He had to be responsible for all these people that are under his employment. So there's like this social responsibility in a way, in addition to financial responsibilities. So it's really important for us. We are actually responsible 
financially and socially to our businesses. So we have to protect it with some sort of boundary. So can you talk a little bit about establishing boundary? Because I think people confuse being soft. We can be soft-spoken, but we can be firm. That's the key thing. That we can be nice and compassionate and warm. But when it comes to boundary, we still have to uphold our own personal boundary. Yes, exactly. I think you just explained it perfectly because I think people struggle with boundaries because they don't want to be looked at as too controlling or nitpicky, but ultimately boundaries are a good thing and they allow your business to succeed and they also allow other people to check in with their boundaries. So a little bit about boundaries. I feel they work three ways, making your boundaries clear to the people you're working with, respecting your client's boundaries, and then obviously course correction when boundaries are crossed. And so I was really curious, what is a common boundary that you feel stagers cross with homeowners or what's a common situation that comes up? So many. One pricing. Can you do this for cheaper? The other stager can do it for half of your price. The other big thing is inventory. I don't like this chair that you brought in. I think it looks like puke. You know, people can get really mean sometimes. There's a lot actually. And I think a lot of times it also has to deal with maybe ego issues because I know some stagers feel very defensive about their inventory or the staging being altered. And that could be because photographer wants to get a better angle. So they move the chair in the photos or maybe they move the pillow or stuff like that. A lot of times people can feel very defensive. And that's the other thing too. I think one of the things that I was really good at or I'm still really good at is I can differentiate what is personal and what is business. And most of the time when you're upset about something, it's usually because you took it personally. So maybe the photographer moved the chair because they can get a better angle for photographing the home and they forgot to put it back. For me, that's not a really big deal. So they can get a better photo. That means I can get a better portfolio photo as well. But some stager may get really upset over it. For me, that is not personal. That is business. But if a homeowner comes back and then restage my entire house using my own inventory, then usually people get really upset because they feel they're being disrespected of their expertise. But for me, that actually is a more deep-rooted issue because A, the homeowner maybe have a control issue that they could not control themselves. They have to physically insert control over the situation, feeling like they have to do something to gain control within the transaction. This happens a lot because a lot of times people are selling their home without their control. It could be the house going through foreclosure. It could be they're coming out of that relationship. They're being forced out of the home and to sell the common property, whatever it is. Maybe there's four brothers and sisters and the parents have passed away. And for some reason, you couldn't fight your oldest brother and they insist on selling the home. So then you feel like you have to come in and insert control. The other thing is, B, am I actually doing a bad job here as a stager? Like I really need to reevaluate my own skill set as well. So you need to check in with a client, not only on the seller side, but also on the agent side. I think it can be very complicated because like you said earlier, we can also be triggered by other people's emotions. But the thing is for me, it's really important for me to stay centered for my business. I need to be calm as a professional Because at the end of the day, I'm responsible for my business. And also, I cannot piss off my client because this is a very people-based industry. Like People talk. If you have a bad performance, it can get through a real estate office very quickly. Someone just needs to send a bulk email, CC everyone on it. So 
it's really important for me to make sure I'm professional at all times and handle the situation well. So yeah, so I think there's lots of emotional triggers stagers may found, but I think the biggest one is usually pricing. Also, I think as a service base, because now that we're working on all these pricing products, right? The pricing guide that we just put out a few months ago, we're realizing there's actually a lot of emotional triggers that people have. Maybe they have FOMO, fear of missing out on a job. So they're purposely pricing it lower than what they would really normally charge. They really want to get this job. Or maybe it's because they're not confident with their pricing. We see that a lot actually with newer stagers as well. People don't feel they're confident enough with their pricing. They don't understand how money works in their business. So we're seeing that they automatically lower themselves in terms of pricing before the client even comes back with the objection on pricing. So I think, yeah, there's actually a lot of emotional trigger. But I would say the most common boundary people might encounter is really, can you lower my price? (laughs) Yes, I feel like that's a very common example across all careers that work one-on-one with people. I get that a lot. And everything you just said, all the different scenarios that can happen, I think it's really important in the industry to ask yourself what these common scenarios are and then ask yourself, what are my boundaries in this scenario? So that before it even happens, say someone does move the chair and then forgets to put it back. If you've already thought about this, you know sort of a script, you know how to respond to them, you know, to take a moment to pause that maybe it isn't personal. And so then you're more prepared for all these different scenarios that a moment where you could be triggered would come up. And so something I learned in my training is that there's three types of boundaries. So there's rigid, which is the most firm boundaries that might be pricing for some stagers. Like this is your price, no matter what, this is what it's going to be. And you're very firm on that decision. And then there's semi-permeable. That's a semi-permeable boundary, which means that context matters. I don't know if you have an example for this. So in my work, that could be someone's late to the appointment. Sometimes that really bothers me depending on what I have going on throughout the day. And sometimes it doesn't really matter. It actually works out better. So that's sort of a semi-permeable boundary where sometimes it's a little bit more serious and sometimes you can be more flexible. And then the third part is a flexible boundary, which is eh, it doesn't matter. Whatever happens, happens. And that really just depends on the individual person, obviously, and where your boundaries are. And so I think that that's a really important step is to look at these three degrees of boundaries and look at the most common scenarios that you find yourself in as a home stager and say, okay, where am I at? Like, what are hard boundaries for me? Where do I have to say no? And so that just allows you to be more prepared. Yeah, this is why we teach everyone to come up with their own set of professional policies. So for example, how would you like to be paid? What are the payment terms? Because when you are setting this up for yourself, you're essentially setting up that boundary. So you know where the hard line is. And I think it's interesting when you talk about the hard versus like the semi-permeable. I feel like we're talking about concrete walls here. (laughs) (laughs) building materials. Even with pricing, I have a hard bottom line, but sometimes I do bend it because if it's a very special project, like for example, I was offered to do the commercial holiday decor for Union Square Ice Rink in San Francisco. So for that job, I didn't make any profit. I just broke even. And so I broke my own pricing boundary on that, but it's because it's kind of like a once in a lifetime opportunity. That project allowed me to decorate one of the cable cars in San Francisco, which 
the city of San Francisco treat it as more of a privilege than something they hire someone to do. Only 10 companies a year are allowed to do that. So for me, it was more of an opportunity to do interesting things using my skill set. So it was okay to take a pay cut. But when it comes to staging projects, I have hard lines. I even have old clients sometimes are like, Cindy, I have a client who has no budget. Can you do it for $1,000? And I'll be like, uh, Crystal, you know that working with us for a long time, I mean, $1,000 wouldn't even get us out of the door. Simply have to pay movers. The movers can drive an empty truck to your house and then comes back, maybe pick up a few things and that's it. That would be what $1,000 covers. Yeah, There are hard things we actually cannot cross. But I think having that set of professional policies that you have in every aspect of your business helps to set that boundary. You already have something in the back of your mind before you go to the client. And when it comes back and say, hey, I need you to lower the price. Can you do it? There are some flexibility things that we can do. So maybe instead of staging the entire house, we stage only the key rooms. We can negotiate that way whatever it is, or we can take out some inventory. Clients usually don't like to hear that. So when they hear, oh, we're going to lose the quality. Okay, maybe we'll try to push our budget up. So I think there are rooms to negotiate. I think it's a matter of figuring out if the client is actually just telling you a soft story to negotiate a price. Because I think client will say anything to get you lower the price. I mean, it's human nature. Yeah. A friend of mine actually used her miscarriage to negotiate having a pet. (laughs) for their house with their landlord. People will use anything to negotiate for everything. So I think that's a more extreme example. But the thing is, people will say anything to get people to lower the price. It is human nature. We have to recognize that. I think not to take it personally, just recognize that's normal human behavior. It's the same way when we shop. If I go to a luxury store, who wouldn't want to buy an LV for like $5, right? (laughs) A real one, obviously. But it's the same thing. It's human nature. We want to pay the least amount of price for free for the most amount of things. Yeah. And that's where it comes to still being kind when that maybe you get a client that is more using their emotions to manipulate, whether it's doing it intentionally or subconsciously, but just being aware that that is human nature and still being kind, but also firm in your boundaries. And actually the most common boundary I do see crossed is emotional. And like what you said with friends and family, they often try to cross boundaries more often because they think they have a special treatment. So that's something that you have to ask yourself is how do you want to respond to friends and family? But for example, with emotional boundaries, I'm sure this happens. Say you have a client that as soon as you get on the job site, as soon as you start the project, they just dump all of their emotional baggage, or they use that interaction as an opportunity to have space held for them, but they don't have boundaries of their own. And so they just start talking and you have that moment where you're like, oh, I don't feel comfortable or I'm not paid to be a therapist. Yeah, no, we had a client once that came and she just was like very emotionally triggered in the beginning. I did not know this because I usually have screening questions on the initial phone interview to make sure that this is the right project for us to move forward. Because I want to make sure I can maximize my time. It does take time to go to do an estimate. 
even if we're getting paid for the estimate. And we went through the estimate process. She seemed completely rational and a normal human being. And it's once we signed the contract, she started freaking out about actually selling the house. And then I found out later from the agent that she actually held on to the apartment for two years. It's a million dollar condo, okay? In like a prime location in San Francisco. It's like almost oceanfront, one block to the ocean. So it's like a million plus condo. Well, now it's probably doubled. But the thing is, she let it set for two years empty, not selling it. That was how emotionally attached she had. And she was basically forced to sell it to pay for the remodeling of her family home, basically. She just got married and her husband basically made her sell this condo. Mm -hmm. Because not only it's sitting empty, you had to pay property tax on it. So at the time when we were selling as a million dollar condo, so obviously property tax would be five figure. It was a huge expense for them and then they had to sell it. So she was very emotionally attached. And then every half an hour more on the job site, she came to look at it. Her new house where they're remodeling, it's also oceanfront. This one is actually in from the ocean. It was like a $4 million house. And it was like a five minute walk to come over and she will come with her prize show dog in her arm. <laughs> and then it's also a very small condo. It was really meant for like a single woman, a single person. And she kept referring it to as her Carrie Bradshaw, you know, like sex in the city apartment. And I was just, oh, can you leave? A, like you're getting in the way of movers. B, I cannot chat with you every single half an hour, every time you come over. In that situation, what would you recommend for us to extract ourselves from that situation? So we do have a job to get on. That's rough. (laughs) I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. In that situation, being emotionally aware, I would just communicate with the client and lay everything out on the table. I would acknowledge her situation first because obviously you're an aware person. I feel like you're really intuitive. So you could communicate to her that it's probably a really hard situation that she's going through and you support her in any way that you can. But what you're hired to do is getting the house ready to sell and selling it as quickly as possible. And so really just kind of redirecting the conversation that you're hired to do A, B, and C. And her coming and visiting a lot distracts or pulls away from your scope of practice. So I don't know if that would have been taken well. That's where it kind of gets iffy is you can say the right things and sometimes they won't take it or respond the right way. So that's where it gets hard. Yeah, I do see stagers, maybe not as extreme, but sometimes clients do come during the middle of day when they want to check at the staging and stuff. I have actually closed the door off sometimes and then just, hey, we're in the process of staging right now. I just want to make sure we can present this in the best way, best view possible. And so it's really important for us to focus on the task at hand and just so that everything you see right now is not the final setting. We're going to play with it a little bit more and all this stuff. Sometimes I actually give them a little tour, just introduce their progress and then also let them know what are some of the things that we think about doing as well. It's really important to refer back to your expertise. So for example, one of the big feedback we got from our cash and cushions into our selling course is that Sage was like saying that, Oh my God, I used to have a really hard time dealing with client objection. But I realized once I started using design language, we have the expertise here. So they stop questioning our design choices. So a lot of times you can actually talk about why I'm grouping the furniture this way is because I want to accentuate the focal point in this particular space. I want to highlight this is the place to entertain, to really get family together, which is perfect, the right purpose for the living room. 
So when you put it in that design setting within your expertise, the client will feel like, okay, you are someone that I can lean on because you know what you're talking about. Then they will back off most mm-hmm. of the time. If they don't back up from that, then you know it's maybe a control issue. So then you need to kind of lean into it a little bit more. And also, I think it's important because we talk about trigger a lot in this conversation. I think it's important to recognize your own trigger as well so that you can really separate personal from business. So I usually just explain things in a very matter of fact face. (laughs) Clients are really sensitive to money, right? Obviously, because they're selling the house. Mm -hmm. And so... So I would say, hey, I really enjoy our visit today. Thank you so much for coming in to checking on us. I really appreciate it. It's really nice to see you. But we actually have to get back to work because if we delay too much, as you know, in a contract, we did say if there's a major delay in progress, we will build out additionally. But yeah, at that point, the client knows it's their cue to leave. Yeah, it's already kind of spelled out very clearly. Uh, (laughs) If you keep bothering me now, basically, I'm going to charge you more money. So that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. And that's where it comes to having a really clear contract and policy so that almost your boundaries are kind of already communicated and you can refer back to them. I was also going to suggest for this situation, which you basically said it is just suggesting solutions of compromise. So maybe with that particular client that kept checking back, just saying, hey, it's really important for us to get this job done in this amount of time. And being disrupted with our flow makes it take a lot longer. Maybe I could text you pictures at the end of the day so that they at least are still feeling like they're a part of the process and in the loop, but you're doing it in a way that feels good for your process. Yeah. And then also some homeowners is the first time selling a house. They've never been through it before. It's not like a real estate agent. It's just a Thursday for them. So I think it's important sometimes the clients may need more handholding. And if you know that early on, maybe pat a little bit more pricing into your pricing as well, because you know you have to take that extra time to do the handholding. So a lot of times, usually when clients on this job site, I will also say it's actually also for your health and safety. We have movers actually coming in and out with boxes, with bins, with big pieces of furniture. A, you're not in the way of the mover and B, you're not going to get hurt. Because it can be a serious situation if a mover gets hurt or if you get hurt in the process. So that's another way to deter client being on the job site. So there are many different ways I think you as a professional can come up with a script to figure out what are some of the things that you can say to stop clients from doing these kind of behavior. In a way, you're kind of training your client to behave. So it's really important to think about what are some of the trigger the client may have and what are some of the ways for you to deal with that without losing your own boundary. Yeah, that's why boundaries are so important because like I said in the beginning is they allow the people you're working with to also set their boundaries and check in with themselves. So I think boundaries are good all around. Yeah, no, I totally agree. My last question really is how can we keep and remain centered in our own work practice, especially when we're in a very emotionally stressed and charged situation. I know we talked about breathing earlier. Is there any other things that you would suggest? Yeah. So besides the breath and the shaking, if if that feels comfortable for you and the affirmations, I also just really think taking a moment to pause and reflect on your day or the situations, or even taking a moment to pause in anticipation for your day so that you have more space to just really think about and be prepared for what's coming. 
I also think a way to stay centered is to have a support group outside of work, whether that is your partner or your best friend or an online space of other home stagers, whatever it is, having a space where you can vent and have a moment to release where there's a level of boundaries that are okay, right? Like you're coming to them to vent and that's a space for you to just release and let go of work stress. I think that's super important for any stressful situation. And then also, of course, I mean, for myself and a lot of people I know, like nature and exercise and those things outside of work that really help fill you up and make you feel centered, then translate into how you show up at work. So definitely having some sort of you time or space where you're taking care of yourself and you have a moment to recharge is really important. Yeah, I think having a set ritual for yourself is very important. And also blocking out time on your schedule. Like I have friends who are really busy professionals and have families and stuff, but they make sure they block out a time for themselves Mm -hmm. on their calendar, whether it's a yoga class or running, stuff like that. I think also physical exercise is really important to kind of help you rebalance. I know a lot of people, maybe they do a little meditation every day has helped to calm them down. The other thing that I personally find helpful is doing morning pages and just journaling and also having a morning practice or even at the end of the night, just dump everything out on a piece of paper and then throw that piece of paper away. It actually helps me sleep better as well because I kind of dump all the negative energy onto that piece of paper and physically actually threw it away. I think sometimes that physical act triggers our brain as well. I guess it's really woo-woo to talk about, but I do feel like you have to find the right way to readjust yourself. We do live in a very stressful world at the moment, I feel like. One after another, you know, everything in the past, I would say 12 months has been fairly stressful. No one's ever been in a lockdown before. Some people who are listening might have gone through three lockdowns already, whatever they are. So it can be very stressful all around. So we have to find ways to keep recentering ourselves. Yeah, definitely. It will sound really woo-woo, but I think what's really important is finding ways to move energy and finding ways to release energy. So whether you call that energy or emotions or stress, whatever it is, I think if you can find ways to release it at the end of the day and also to move it through yourself or just move it throughout your day, I think that will really help. Yeah. So we're coming up to our last question. What is the number one tip you'll give to home stagers when it comes to working with clients who are going through emotional traumas? I think the number one tip for home stagers would be to find that perfect balance that we've been talking about throughout this podcast of A, being in your heart, being kind, being compassionate, actually caring for the people that you're working with. And then also echoing that with being very professional and sticking to your boundaries because ultimately we're not therapists. We are running a business and we have to maintain professionalism to get our job done. So I think finding that perfect balance is my number one tip, which is not easy, (laughs) but hopefully some of these conversations have helped. Yeah. I think it's also a practice, you know, it's a continuous practice. I learned that through doing yoga, through, because I'm a Buddhist, in the recent years, I've done more reading on it. Especially running a business is really like a marathon. You know, it's a continuous practice. You cannot exert all the energy up front when you're running because you're going to run out of breath toward midway or toward the end. So we have to keep it consistent and then just keep going. Keep calm and carry on, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, that can be the mantra. <laughs> yeah. So thank you again for coming on our show today. It was so nice to talk about something other than social media and then to be a total woo geek, I guess. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I love conversations like these. So thank you for having me. So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You can also find the show notes by going to stagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging. Mm-hmm.